Let's go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 11 with me. Mark chapter 11. Our passage this week actually marks the end of Jesus' public ministry. And it begins with a final public confrontation with the religious leaders. As you remember last week, we looked at the um, triumphal entry where Jesus entered into Jerusalem. That was, I'll say, the end of his journey. Obviously, it's a period of time because there's a final week here where he will ultimately be betrayed, be prosecuted, persecuted, um, and then put to death and ultimately rise from the dead. And that's where his journey really ends. But from Mark's perspective, the whole point has been to get him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And so he's been on that journey. And so last week he finally enters Jerusalem. And we see here that he's had this final confrontation with the religious leaders. His ministry really from this point forward will be with the disciples and will be to prepare them. Some final things that he will do. And it includes a discussion about what to expect between his ascension and ultimately his return. And some of the things that you call them end time events that will take place. And so he will spend after this his time primarily focusing just on those disciples to prepare them for that right before he gets arrested. There's these various groups that approach him today. There's chief priests, there's scribes, there's elders, there's Pharisees, there's Sadducees, and they all at this point sort of make a last-ditch effort to discredit him, to tear him down in the public's eyes. When that ultimately doesn't work is when they arrest him, try him, and crucify him. So we're going to look at three things today and how they do this. The first thing that they attempt to do is they question his authority. What right does he have to do and say the things that he does? The second thing they'll try to do when that doesn't work is they will try to trap him politically. In other words, if they can't get him with his authority, then they'll try to trap him politically and get him in trouble with Rome or with the people. When that fails, they then try to trap him theologically to discredit what he was teaching. We know that all three of those things fail, which ultimately leads to his... Arrest. But let's look at the first part of that. They question his authority. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders all come to him together. This is starting in verse 27 of chapter 11. Let's go ahead and read this with me here. They came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Verse 28, and they began saying to him, By what authority are you doing those things, or who gave you this authority to do these things? The group consists again of the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, which suggests that this group is actually probably members of something called the Grand Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a group of individuals, there's a total of 70 of them, they made up the judges, they're sort of like the Supreme Court of Israel. So they're basically lawyers, if you want to say it that way. And this group was generally made up of a mix, like I said, in this case, it's chief priests, it's scribes, who were the, the ones who were sort of the, the scholars or the, when it came to the law. Um, they had elders, which were sort of the, supposed to be the shepherds of Israel. So it was a mixed group that made up the Sanhedrin. In fact, we believe the Apostle Paul may have been a member of the Sanhedrin. And part of it's because of some comments he makes in the scriptures. But it was a very elite group of judges, lawyers, um, again, sort of the Supreme Court. So this is a contingency from them that come to question Jesus. So this is a pretty big deal. These are the the big authorities that come in, the big guns. They immediately question Jesus by asking him what authority he has to do these things. These things likely refers to, um, in a general sense, most of Jesus' ministry, but probably specifically what's just happened recently. Remember, he came into Jerusalem. There's a big procession leading down to Jerusalem. 
He came in. He cleansed the temple. You remember that? Which obviously is going to make quite a commotion. Some guy walked into the temple, starts overturning the money changers and, and kicking things around. But then also, he was teaching in the temple as well. And so it's likely that they were concerned primarily with those activities. They've always had a problem with the other things that he did, but now he's taken it up a notch. One of the things we learned last week was one of his purposes of the, of the um, march into Jerusalem and doing what he did was to con- deliberately confront the religious leaders. He goes on the offensive. And so they're offended by that. And so they challenge him. They bring, they bring in basically all of their legal muster, their muscle, they demand that he gives an, in, gives an answer. Um, the insinuation by what they're doing here is that he had absolutely no right in their eyes because they had not given him permission. So Jesus answers or basically proposes another question to them. He says that he will answer their question about by what authority he does this as long as they'll answer a question of his own. I love the fact that he's not intimidated here by these religious leaders. He basically says this in verses 29 through 33. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And here's his question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. Now, this really posed a dilemma for them. If they said heaven, meaning that it came from God, then they'd have a problem. Because Jesus would accuse them of saying that John was not a prophet. Look at what happens in verse 31. They began reasoning among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, then when did you not believe him? So they knew what Jesus was driving home at. They had laid a trap for Jesus. He's now laying a trap for them. John was a very popular prophet. He was the people's prophet had a significant impact on the people of Jesus' day, which is ultimately what led to the people following Christ. Because John pointed them to Jesus. And he was, the people really liked him. He was popular. And so by doing this, Jesus sort of puts them on the spot. The people thought that John was a prophet from God, as he was. Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees didn't believe so. So Jesus puts them on the spot. And they caught this. So they said, man, if we say that he's... If we say that he's from heaven, then they're going to ask us why we didn't believe him. That's a good question, isn't it? If they believed that John was a prophet from God, they should have believed him, but they didn't. Look at the second half of the reasoning, verse 32. But if we say that he was from men, in other words, that he's not a prophet of God, it says that they were then afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a prophet. So they have this difficult decision to make. Do we say he's from heaven... And then have the people accuse us of not following him? Or do we say that he's from men and then face a revolt by the people? We lose our popularity. Sounds much like politics, doesn't it? I heard that Joe Biden came out yesterday and said that he's going to make his platform, or part of his platform, um, LGBTQ rights. He wants to pass the bill right now that, what, 60-some-odd congressmen right now are supporting, which is to give LGBT rights, or give LGBT LGBT. TBQW, well, I think there's a pound sign in there or something too, and some symbols. I wants to give them the same rights that, say, um, minorities have through the bill through the um, Civil Rights Act. 
And there's really no religious exemptions from that, which means the goal is ultimately to force people to do certain things against their conscience when it comes to that. So if you bake cakes for a living, you'll have to bake cakes for lesbian couples or whatnot. If you do photography, you'll be forced to do that. If you are a church, there's even some question, and you perform weddings, you may be forced to perform weddings against your conscience. And Joe Biden has decided that will be part of his platform. Well, now, the only reason I bring that up is because it seems like every one of these presidential candidates sort of look around and think, what, what can I do that will differentiate me from somebody else? And so you have some supporting the Green New Deal, you have some supporting reparations for, for former slaves and their, their descendants, and you have others that are, you know, universal health care, and you have others that free education, and you have others that are doing the LGBT stuff. They all have to find something that they think will get them the most votes. And what we oftentimes find is that they don't necessarily always believe in those things, do they? It's all about popularity. It's all about what will make them look good. Or the opposite is often true. Well, I don't believe that, or I I wouldn't say that when you've got them on record saying that or doing that, but why are they now denying it? Because it makes them look bad. And that's exactly what these religious leaders here are doing. They're afraid of looking bad in front of the people. Either they'll be accused of not following John's teaching, or they'll be accused of not believing he's a prophet. Either way, it's bad for them. So they actually refused to answer, verse 33. Answering Jesus, they said, well, we don't know. Bit of a dodge. Well, we don't know. We can't answer your question. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. In other words, you're not going to answer me? I'm not going to answer you. Now, we know what they were all thinking. They didn't believe that John the Baptist was a prophet. That's pretty obvious. The reason Jesus refused to answer their question, I believe, is because it didn't matter. Jesus knew darn well that they had rejected John and his authority from God. And just as they rejected John, they would reject Jesus himself too. That was pretty clear. So basically what Jesus does at this point now is he rebukes the leaders for abusing their authority. So they asked Jesus, by what authority do you do this? And ultimately Jesus' response is to rebuke them for their abuse of authority. Take a look at um, chapter 12. Verse 1, we hear this. Jesus began to speak to them in a parable. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and then he went on a journey. So, who do you suppose the man who planted the vineyard represents here? Anybody want to take a guess? It's God the Father. So he basically creates this vineyard, if you will, The vineyard there is God's people. And then it says that he goes on a journey. Verse 2, And the harvest, in harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce in the vineyard from the wine growers, or vine growers. They took him, they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent yet another And that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. Now who do you suppose the slaves here that he he, uh, is sending to them represent? Yeah, prophets. Old Testament prophets, which we're told elsewhere, Jesus accused them of beating and killing the prophets. And we find that in the Old Testament. So, who do you suppose the son here now is in verse 6? Let's look at this. And he had one more to send. This is the father now. One more, or the owner of the vineyard, in the case it would be God the Father. 
He has one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him, they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. So who do you suppose the son represents there? Christ is speaking about himself. He's basically just said, look, God the Father created a vineyard. Put you in charge of it. When he sent his prophets to see how things were going, you killed the prophets. Then God the Father sent his son, me. And you'll do the same thing to me. You'll kill me. Verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. So what we find here is who's the cornerstone? It's the Son. It's Christ himself. Now, obviously he's telling a story here, a parable, but he's basically confronting them on their abuse of authority. They were supposed to be servants to the Lord, tending his vineyard, but they've killed all his prophets, and they're not going to kill his son. Now, the meaning of this was not lost. You know, these Pharisees and scribes and whatnot can be fairly dense. We see that in the scriptures. But they pick up on this. Look at verse 12. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. And so they left him and went away. So they understood what, exactly what Jesus was doing. They didn't miss. Part of the reason Jesus spoke in parables was to, in some respects, hide the truth from those that refused to accept it. But this one he did in such a way that they clearly understood that he was a talking to them, that he was talking to them about their abuse of authority. So what's the practical application for us in this? Do you get the impression here that God cares about the behavior of those who lead his people? Think about that for a moment. We even see in parts of the Old Testament where the priests are called out by God because of their abuse of the law, what they did. We see the the priests get charged with idolatry and um, getting judged pretty severely. We see that in God's treatment of these wicked, wicked priests in the Old Testament. There's an expectation by God that his leaders will uphold a certain standard and shepherd his people appropriately. Do you think we ever see something like that in the church? Do you think we ever see leaders in the church who operate under their own authority rather than God's? Yeah, we see it all over the place, folks. In fact, (laughs) this morning it was interesting. I was just flipping through some news stuff on my phone. I get most of my news just through some news, news feeds, and there happened to have been an interview. Call it, it's an ambush, basically, but it's an interview with uh, Inside Edition, where they had, um, the woman ran up to Kenneth Copeland as he was out at his airplane hangar getting into his limousine. You know who Kenneth Copeland is? He's a word faith charlatan is basically a better description of it. He's a false teacher. Um, he's got three private jets. And um, he made some comments not too long ago about how he flies private jets because he doesn't want to get in the, those tubes, meaning regular planes, filled with demons. And um, 
his theology, he's, he's a false teacher. Um, it's not hard to see that in the things that he teaches. He's one who believes that you personally could have hung on the cross and paid for not just your sins, but the sins of the world. He believes Jesus went to hell and had to suffer for sin, even though that's not clear. He believes in name it and claim it uh, theology, which is basically you dictate what God does for you. God is obligated to you to do what you ask him to do. Not only that, he's become rich, filthy, stinking rich off the donations of God's people. So he's clearly a false teacher. Well, what's interesting is she cornered him on the tarmac, so to speak, and asked him some of these questions. And it was truly an ambush. You know, she was looking for a story and looking to make news. That's pretty clear. So she's not innocent in all this. But man, watching his responses and his answers um, was creepy. Just creepy. He's a charlatan. He's a false teacher. And that's, that's not unusual. He's not alone. We see that. We even see that not just within those what I'll call the outside fringes of the church. I mean, there's a lot of... Paul even warned about that. Men who do it for their own personal gain. I've mentioned some stuff recently here with what happened at Corner or what happened at um, Harvest in Chicago with a fairly well-known um, Christian leader, James McDonald, with his Walk in the Word ministry. Over 2,000 um, television or TV or radio stations that carry his program and um, the thousands and thousands and thousands of people that have looked to him for his teaching and, and the train wreck that that's become with recently being accused of hire, trying to hire a hitman and some other things. There's, We see that in the church, folks, and it's, it's, it is getting worse. Um, leaders who operate under their own authority, who are building big businesses that they call the church. These are pastors and teachers who mislead God's people. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 20 with me. Paul was concerned about this. Acts chapter 20. Paul had helped start a church in Ephesus. And as he always did, he left others in charge of that church because Paul's goal was to simply lead people to Christ. He would establish churches and then then, um, teach and train men to serve as elders and pastors for those churches. And so... He wasn't going to make it back to Ephesus, but he wanted to talk to the Ephesus elders. And so Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 25, he says this, and this is where he met with the elders. He had basically come through the area and invited the elders to come and join him so he could challenge them one last time on their shepherding, how they should lead God's church. Verse 25, And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. This is the last visit he would make. Therefore I testify to you this to this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. But here's his challenge to them. Be on guard for yourselves and for the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. Those are the false teachers. They won't spare the flock. And from among you, your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away and make disciples after themselves. Therefore, be on alert. Remember that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to to admonish each one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver, gold, or clothes. You might paraphrase that as, I didn't buy three corporate jets to fly around in my vacation homes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs 
and to the men who were with me, Paul worked as a tent maker to provide for his own needs. He didn't build churches to put money in his own pocket. In everything, I show you that by working hard in this manner, in other words, with my own hands, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. Now one thing we find is, these are the Ephesian elders. And Paul is basically warning them about how they are supposed to shepherd the flock, saying, there will come from among you men who will mislead, men with ill motives. There will be false teachers, wolves. They will take away people and build disciples after themselves. It will not be about God and his kingdom. Now the sad thing is that some of them didn't pay attention because Paul actually wrote 1 Timothy to Timothy, who he left at Ephesus because of the false teaching at Ephesus. And that was just a short time after he had written this. That's the nature of the church in some respects. There will always be false teachers, wolves. They're generally pretty obvious. So, what does this mean for us? A true leader operates under the authority and purposes of Jesus Christ, not himself. A true leader operates under the authority and purposes of Jesus Christ. I hate it when I hear pastors refer to the church they pastor as my church. When what they mean is, I control, I direct. This church does what I set in motion. Not bad to call a church your church. But oftentimes, pastors, elders believe that what they've built is theirs. And they'll do anything to protect it. Anything to grow it. Which oftentimes revolves around compromise and ill motives. And what we have here with Israel is these leaders in Israel had done just that. They weren't serving God's purposes, but their own. Many of them were pompous and arrogant and proud because of the position they held. The Apostle Paul admits to that. As a pompous, arrogant Pharisee himself. Before Christ got a hold of his heart. And so the first practical application, I think, for us is that when we look at this, we have to understand that we, whether we're a leader or not, we always operate under the authority and purpose of Jesus Christ. I even think about that as a parent. Think about that for a minute. My kids are not really mine, they're the Lord's, which means I operate under the authority of Christ. I should always be striving for His purposes for them, not my own. And it's especially important when it comes to the church. And so what Jesus tells these Pharisees, scribes, and others here is that it's all going to be yanked out of their hands. It's all going to be yanked out of their hands. And we know that that's exactly what happens. There's the destruction of the temple in AD 70, which literally crushed the Jewish religious structure for thousands of years almost. So they had their authority yanked out of their hands. And the parable here says that that authority would be given to somebody else. Who do you think that is? It's ultimately the church. Now, it doesn't mean God's done with Israel. The church does not replace Israel. But what God did was he took leadership and shepherding of his people out of the hands of the religious leaders in Israel and gave it to common folks, the church. The church is now the shepherd, if you will, that governs 
God's people. Well, the problem is we see the same kind of abuses within that as we do, as we did here. And God will deal with that. Ultimately, God will deal with that. So that's the first group. They challenge Jesus' authority, and we can see that what he does is he turns it back on them and says, you've abused your authority, and for that reason, God will take it away from you. The second group that approaches him are the Pharisees and the Herodians, and they try to trap him now politically. Look at verse 13 with me of chapter 12. They then sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. Now this is a rather interesting mix because the Pharisees and the Herodians didn't get along. And the reason was they had radically different philosophies politically. The Pharisees wanted independence from Rome. They wanted Israel to be on its own. But we know that Rome controlled Israel. The Pharisees weren't happy with that. They believed in reestablishing the kingdom of David with a descendant of David on the throne. The Herodians, however, favored submitting to Rome. They believed it was good for Israel. They supported King Herod, who was a wicked Roman subject, basically, that was supposed to rule Israel. He was basically a Roman puppet, and they believed in supporting him. So we have these two different groups politically, the Pharisees wanting independence from Rome, and the Herodians saying, no, we need to support Rome, it's good for us. Submission to the government, all that. However, the one thing they could agree on was their opposition to Jesus. There's only three times where these Herodians appear in the scriptures, and every time they appear with the Pharisees. And it's because they were unified in one thing, their opposition to Jesus Christ. Interesting how that makes bedfellows, isn't it? I wonder sometimes as I look around, in some segments of the American church, we've had the joining of forces with those that we are diametrically opposed to. (laughs) And it's all because they're trying to accomplish some agenda. It's interesting how that happens. Notice the text says that they were sent in order to trap him in a statement. They were likely sent by the Sanhedrin, meaning the people that had just gotten defeated by Jesus said, well, we'll send somebody else. We'll send the Herodians and the Pharisees because maybe they can get Jesus in trouble with Rome. Their trap was political in nature and it involved whether or not the Jews should pay what's referred to as a poll tax. Look at verses 14 and part of 15 there. They came to him and they said, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one. You notice a flattery there? The first time the, the other group came, they just came right out of the gate and accused him when it came to his authority. Now they're taking a light, little bit lighter approach. Let's, let's try flattery this time. We know that you are truthful and you defer to no one. For you are not partial to anyone. Meaning, you're a reasonable man, Jesus. We can talk to you. But you teach the way of God in truth. Now that, I know, is flattery because they didn't believe that. They just accused him of of not having the authority that he claims. He wasn't from God. How could he teach the word of God in truth? They had accused him of what he taught in the synagogues. This is all pure flattery. It's all political speech. It's the way to win over somebody. It's much like President Trump, who in one breath can praise Kim Jong-un, but then in the next breath... Isn't that interesting how he's a master at political speech, is he not? Most politicians are. They'll say anything to get you to think favorably of them, and that's exactly what happens here. So then they pose the question. They've now buttered him up, so now they're going to pose the question. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? 
Now, the reason they bring this one up is because there was a debate about this poll tax. The poll tax was actually something that Rome had instituted not too many years before. We're probably now talking about A.D. 30 or something. It was A.D. 6 when this tax was levied against Jerusalem and Judea by the Romans. It's basically a tribute tax. Okay? It's to sort of keep the peace. Some groups, particularly this group called the Zealots, refused to pay the tax because they felt it acknowledged Rome's dominion over Israel, which was true. Rome had dominion over Israel, but they said, we're not going to pay it. It'll give legitimacy. So if we don't pay it, they really don't have any authority over us. So the Zealots um, refused to pay that. That was partly what ultimately led to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. The Zealots kind of rose up. Many common Jews resented paying the tax because they believed it violated God's commandment against idolatry. One of the things that, that you have to understand is that they would have to pay this tax with what's called a Roman denarius. It's the only, only coin they could use to pay this poll tax. However, as all Roman coins did, they had the picture of the emperor on it. And it also had an inscription referring to the emperor as a god. Because Roman emperors were considered divine. And so at this particular time, the Rome or the denarius actually had a picture of Tiberius Caesar, Augustus. So it had his face on it. And the inscription on the coin said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. He was the son of a god. And so for many Jews, as you might imagine, to use this coin amounted in some respects to blasphemy or idolatry. So most of the common people had a problem paying the tax. They felt as though they shouldn't be doing it. The Pharisees resented it, obviously, but mostly because they were humiliated by having to recognize Roman rule. But they justified that you need to pay it. Whether that was because of the law or other reasons. They didn't like paying it, but they believed you should pay it. And so most of the people, even though they struggled with the issue of idolatry, would pay the poll tax anyway. The last group, the Herodians, they supported paying the tax, encouraged people to pay the tax, because they wanted to support the government. They wanted to support Rome because they believed in Roman rule over Jerusalem. So you have these different viewpoints and all that. And so basically what happens here is they come to Jesus and they realize there is no way for this guy to win this debate. We can get him in trouble politically because there is no way that he can answer this question without getting himself in trouble with somebody. Isn't that kind of the way politics oftentimes works when you have one news media that wants to attack somebody they disagree with? They'll come at 16 different angles. They'll find some way that will, and they will twist words, and it doesn't matter what the truth is. They will, in fact, you look at the headlines sometimes and you'll, you'll see there's maybe one comment that some politician or some person made and they'll give you this little snippet, and then they have a headline. And then if you really go and look at, sometimes even within the article you find out that it's not even true in the article, because it doesn't match the headline. Because they know most people won't read past the headline. Or they'll take something out of context. And if you go and read the full quote, sometimes you say, oh, that's not really what that person said. It's not what he intended. But it doesn't matter. Because the whole point is to discredit you politically. They do the same thing with religious leaders oftentimes. The way the media and others portray religious leaders. 
You know, think about recently what happens here. Why is it, in fact, Amy and I experienced this to some degree, the library, the Delaware library system, they were going to have a drag 101 class with a drag queen coming in and teaching kids how to dress up in drag. And so obviously created a bit of a firestorm. And you go in and look at the library Facebook page and you see all the posts and all that kind of stuff. And it doesn't matter why you were opposed to it. Because if you were opposed to it, you were called a homophobic bigot or any other name you could think of. Now, homophobia means you are afraid of gay people. I'm opposed to it. I'm not afraid of gay people. I hang out with my brother-in-law when we go home. We go to his house for Christmas. You know, I'm not afraid of gay people. But that doesn't matter because they know that if they tag you that way, it makes you look bad. You know, or you are filled with hate. None of this was hate. In fact, I actually, normally I avoid this kind of stuff, but I decided I wanted to poke the bear a little bit. So I poked the bear a little bit with some comments. Um, all in truth. But they don't want to answer that. They want to just name names and point fingers and use derogatory language. That's the way it works. Because they're just trying to destroy your image or who you are. And so the same thing happens here with Jesus. They know, well, we couldn't get him out of authority. So now we're just going to destroy his reputation politically. And maybe if we're really lucky, we'll get him in trouble with Rome. Because if Jesus says, yeah, we shouldn't pay the tax... Now it makes him an enemy of Rome. So they begin with flattery. They try to trap him. A yes answer, yes, you should pay the tax, would put him at odds with many of the people. How can you believe you should pay this tax, Jesus? Isn't that idolatry? We shouldn't pay the tax. How can you appreciate Rome being over us? If we pay the tax, it just gives Rome power, Jesus. So that's not right. So if he says yes, he's got that problem. If he says no, then obviously the Roman authorities are going to have a problem with that. Here's a religious leader. Hmm, he's going to want to start a revolt. Get people to not pay their taxes. Rome would not put up with that. In fact, we've seen in the scriptures, you're no friend of Caesar. Why? Because you oppose whatever it is. But Jesus sees through their hypocrisy and insincerity. And he responds in a kind of a remarkable way. Look at verses 15 and following there. Verse 15, second half of it. Why are you testing me? I can almost see him with a look on his face. He's tired of him. Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. So what do they do? They brought him a denarius. And he says, whose likeness and inscription is on this? And they said to him, well, obviously Caesar's. Hard to miss. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. So he's got this rather remarkable response to them. Basically, he says, well, give to Rome what's Rome's, give to God what's God's. Well, what belongs to Rome? The tax, the money. I mean, Israel benefited from Roman rule. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm simply saying that Rome built roads and providing, mean, okay. Pay the tax. It's a tax. You're obligated to pay the tax. Doesn't mean it's all good. Isn't that the same with our own government here? We pay a tax because of the product, the services that are provided through paying taxes to support the government. Does everything the government do good? Good? No. Do we appreciate everything the government does? No. Are the taxes too high? Generally, yes. But what belongs 
to Rome, he says, pay to Rome. But then he says, give to God what's God's. What do you suppose he's thinking about there? I think part of it is, a, is a, this idea that the Roman emperors were considered gods. And certainly they don't deserve that. That only belongs to God. God is divine. So in other words, don't worship the emperors. They demand that. Many of them did. In fact, that's partly why the Christians got in trouble in the first century, because they refused to worship Nero as a god. So Jesus says, go ahead and give them what's theirs, the tax, but don't give them divine rights or anything else. But in addition to that, I think Jesus might have very well been talking to them about making sure that they still continue to support the temple and other things, because God demanded that. I, uh, this, it's kind of a strange one, but I, I had an argument one time with somebody who was telling me that he no longer had to give any portion of his income to the church or to missions or anything like that at all because he paid taxes. I said, well, how does that work? And he's like, well, because they already take X percent of my money and that's part of my giving. That's just what it is. I said, well, that's kind of strange because Jesus said give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. What's... What are you missing there? But he, was, he just insisted that, no, my tax covers it. You know, Now your tax doesn't cover it. God still expects you to be gracious and kind and you know, tells us to take care of widows and orphans. You know, We're still supposed to give at least something on a regular basis to help care for God's people and to further the kingdom of God, however we need to do that. Doesn't mean you've got to give it all to the church here. Doesn't mean you have to give any of it to the church here. Just give where God leads you to give. You can't write it off and say, yeah, but I already paid my taxes. God, it took too much already. Jesus didn't permit that. So a practical application for us is obviously this. No matter how much we hate or despise paying taxes, guess what, folks? We have to pay taxes. Paul even covers this in Romans chapter 13. In fact, why don't you turn there with me? Romans chapter 13. There are many Christians, I won't say it's a huge movement, but there is a fairly substantial movement within Christianity that teaches we that it's illegal for the government to collect taxes. And they'll argue that the Constitution supports it, etc., meaning supports not paying taxes, everything else. I think they're wrong. But um, believe it or not, there are Christians who do not believe we should pay taxes. Partly because the taxes go to support all kinds of things like abortion and other things, right? And so they'll use any number of arguments. But look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 13, verses 6 and 7. Verse 5, Therefore it is necessary to be in subjection, subjection to local authorities, government. Not only because of wrath, but for conscience sake, for because of this you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Paul could not have been more clear. Pay your taxes to Caesar as much as we don't like to. So Paul makes that clear in case there's any objections. However, I think the biggest issue here is the second half of that, which is give God what belongs to him. Give God what belongs to him. That's another attack, I think, against these Herodians and these Pharisees. Because they weren't honoring God. At all. In fact, we're told that they only worshipped God with their lips. In fact, Jesus said, you guys are experts at putting aside the law of God for your own traditions. So, there's, I guess, a double meaning in this. 
where he's poking the bear, so to speak, with these Pharisees and Herodians. You need to give to God what is rightfully his, and you're not doing it. He deserves honor and glory and submission and obedience and worship. And you're not giving that to him. So once again, he takes this trap that you set for him, and he turns it back around on them. So not only were they abusing their authority, but they weren't honoring God as they should have been. The last attack comes from the Sadducees themselves. They try to trap Jesus theologically. The first trap was about his authority. The second trap was politically. The third trap here is now theologically. Look at chapter 12. We're going to read verses 18 through 23. Some Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died leaving no children. The second one married her and died leaving behind no children. And the third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. What we're talking about here is the concept of the kinsman redeemer. Basically, the Old Testament law taught that if a husband and a wife were married, and then the husband died before, the, before they had children, and the wife was left a widow... If there was a brother to the husband, and he was single, he was to marry her so that they might be able to produce offspring in the name of the first husband. It was a way of continuing the line. And it was called the kinsman redeemer. And so what the the Sadducees do, they think they're being clever here. They basically say, well, there is no resurrection at all. We know Jesus believes in a resurrection, so we're going we're gonna to trick we're going to show him and prove to him that what he thinks is wrong by asking him a question that they really think he's not going to be able to answer. So they basically say, okay, let's get to this whole kinsman redeemer issue. A woman gets married, husband dies, brother marries, he dies, brother marries, he dies. So now she's had seven husbands, Jesus. So tell us, because of this resurrection thing, we've got a problem. Whose husband, or who, who's going to be her husband in heaven? Which of these seven? Because it can't be all of them. And they think they're being clever here and think that there's no way for Jesus to answer this. It's much like people do today. Well, let's, you know, you get the whole concept of annihilationism, which is that there's no hell. Okay? You hear somebody like, um, I won't name names on this one, but it's almost as if a person who doesn't believe in hell would come to us and say, okay, so ABC, what happens in hell in this case? Boom, boom, boom. And they use the argument that they don't necessarily believe in to trap us because they know we believe in it. And that's exactly what they've done with Jesus here. Well, again, Jesus has a rather clever response to them. Verse 24. Is this not the reason you are mistaken? That you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God. I love that statement. They were mistaken because... They did not understand the scriptures or the power of God. Let's finish reading that. Verse 25, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, you have not read in the book of of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. So basically what Jesus does here is he points out the fact that they are ignorant. He says, you don't understand two things. One, you don't understand the word of God. And two, you certainly don't understand the power of God. What is he getting at there? Well, he goes back to a passage, of the, a passage in the Old Testament. It happens to be the passage of Moses the burning bush, where God speaks about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the present tense as if they're still alive. Proving that they were indeed alive. Because while they were dead physically, God still spoke about them in the present tense. Because they were in heaven with him. And so Jesus says, how'd you miss that? Especially such a key passage in the Old Testament. They had failed to properly understand it and interpret it. Because God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And Abraham, Jacob, Joseph are all living. And in essence, what Jesus says is that proves there's a resurrection. David himself indicates that he would see his son that had died someday be reunited. We saw at the transfiguration, both Moses and Elijah, alive, standing with Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration. There's no question the resurrection, life after this physical death here, is real. The Old Testament makes that abundantly clear, but these guys didn't understand the Word of God. These were religious leaders. Didn't have a handle on the Word of God. The second thing he says about that is, not only do you not understand the Word of God, but you don't understand the power of God. Why is that important here? What do you suppose it takes to raise a body from the grave? Basically, by denying the resurrection, they were basically saying, oh, God can't do that. That's crazy. You're dead. You're done. That's all there is to it. Which means they completely disregarded the power of of God. It makes you wonder what other things they might have ignored. What I find fascinating about this, and it comes to our what I'll call our practical application, is how many leaders today do this very same thing. There's some issues that I'm fairly passionate about just because I, I enjoy studying them. One of them is obviously creation. And it, it's shocking to me the number of what I would call evangelical mainline Christian leaders that take the first 11 chapters of Genesis which speak about the creation of the universe and all things in it and they basically say that it's not real it's not historical and the, the reason they do that is twofold one, they ignore the scriptures themselves because as you go through the scriptures Jesus, Peter, Paul, Jude every New Testament writer treats Genesis 1-11 through 11 as legitimate chronological history. Every one of them does. But yet we have leaders, pastors, and others today that say, oh no, really they're wrong. So they, they, so they don't know. They just don't know the scriptures. When you go to many of the websites of, of people that promote, say, theistic evolution or long earth creation and other things, you'll find that they quote science all the time. But they have difficulty when it comes to the scriptures. And when they do quote the scriptures, oftentimes they're out of context or they're twisted. There's just not a whole lot of theological accuracy in what they argue. So they ignore, they do not understand the word of God. But in addition to that, 
what really underlies what many of them are teaching is they don't understand the power of God. Could God blink the world into existence in six literal days? Absolutely. He can do anything. Why is that offensive to some? Why is it somehow God's power is only limited to scientific processes and purposes that we can observe today? Why is it we have to take God and put him in a box and say, oh, well, God couldn't do that. He has to follow the laws that he created. Oh, the light from, you know, we know that light today from that star takes 3.5 million light years. So God could not have created in six literal days. Why? Because God is somehow locked into the rules that he created about science. Really, do you think that Jesus had a problem with that when Mary said, what are we going to do about the wine? And Jesus went, oh, you know what, gee, I, I can't turn water into wine. That like, violates all the laws of the universe. I can't do that. What about when they came to him with Lazarus? Do you think Jesus sat back and went, oh, I can't raise him from the... Are you crazy? Dad is dead. You know, there's, there's certain laws that God created, you know. I, I can't... I certainly can't. What about the resurrection? What about the flood? I mean, all these things that we see throughout the scriptures that demonstrate the power of God that really go contrary, sometimes, to the laws of the universe and physics and everything else. Folks, those are miracles. Just like the resurrection of the dead... And what these Sadducees had done was they had completely disregarded God's word and they had disregarded God's power to do anything. And unfortunately, we see that today. We see that in the church today. There are so many areas where the church is being attacked today that have a direct relationship to those two things, either leaders that do not understand God's word or they don't understand the power of God. Or both. You know, Dustin and I talk about this all the time because Dustin and I, in order for us to get up here on a Sunday morning and teach, we have to invest typically anywhere from maybe 10 hours to 20 hours a week to, to study to be able to come up with one message. It's a lot of hard work. The reason it takes us so long is because we do the work. We don't go to SermonCentral.com and download somebody else's sermon. We also don't just say, huh, what do we know that we can put into an outline and just teach? Just come up with some... No. I spent the last... I literally, for one message this next, uh, coming up in a couple of weeks here, it took me two weeks to do half of it. Because it involved studying all kinds of stuff. It deals with end times. I was in Ezekiel, I was in Daniel, I was in Micah, I was in the book of Revelation, I was in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's exhausting. Now, I don't say that to puff myself up. What I'm saying is that part of the reason our churches are a mess today is because the guys getting up on the pulpit, many of them don't understand the Word of God. They understand Christian principles and purposes and stuff like that, but they don't put the work and energy into studying the Word of God as they should. And that's exactly what Jesus was confronting the Sadducees on here. They did not understand the Word of God or the power of God.